Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and here with me today is Jeff Rader and Andy Katz Mayfield, the co-founders of Harry's Inc. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Priya. How are you? Thanks for having us. It's great to see you. Hi, Andy. Hey, Priya. Great to see you again. So I, I would say, guys, that, you know, Harry's is a name that is iconic at this point in personal care and CPG and beauty. So I have to ask, you know, how did you guys first meet? Well, uh, we met um, almost 20 years ago, which is a little bit terrifying to, to say that. Um, but we met actually as college interns um, at Bain & Company. We were in undergrad at the time, wearing oversized Brooks Brothers suits that our mothers had bought us, like living at home, running around like chickens with our heads cut off, trying to figure out how to like be professional and function in a, in a business environment. Uh, and here we are nearly 20 years later, still working together. Tell me a little bit about what you guys were doing after that first meeting, because I know, Jeff, you obviously went on to found Warby Parker, and then, you know, Harry's is your second act. But, you know, there was a little bit of time in between where you guys were thinking about this idea. What was that? What was that all about? Yeah. So um, Andy and I worked together, as he mentioned, um, for actually a few years. um, And then we both went off to business school. uh, And um, we always talked about doing something together. Like we loved working together and we're really good friends and thought it would be fun to, to start a company together if, if we had an idea and, and kind of the opportunity presented itself. And when I was at school, three close friends uh, of mine and I started Warby Parker, um, which started as an idea that one of our one of my good friends had and you know kind of turned into a business school project and then a company that we started and and then for us, we started, you know, selling product and launched the brand and we're having real impact on people's lives, which was, I think, super motivating to all of us um, and exciting to figure out how to deliver customers great experiences, have positive impact on the community and, and hopefully do so in a way that was just new and innovative from, from what had been done before. Um, and so I'd had that experience and um, it was an amazing experience for me. Uh, and Andy and I had stayed really close throughout the experience. We, we talked a lot about it. Um, and then one day... Uh, he reached out to me. He actually he actually did it on, on Gchat. We say he called me a lot, but he actually Gchatted me. I was at work. <laughs> uh, and he said, you know, hey, I had this really bad experience in a, in a drugstore, you know, um, being overcharged, you know, for razor blades by these brands that don't really connect with me. Um, do you think you could take what you learned at Warby Parker, you know, building brands that people love and trying to do good in the world and do good for customers and bring design and style to an industry that might I may have lacked it, you know, before. Um, do you think you could do that, you know, in razors and razor blades? Like, because gosh, I as a customer would love a better experience and, and you know, could we something we should do together? Um, and I remember like, you know, reading that and thinking about it and be like, wow, this is an awesome opportunity. Like I completely um, felt the same thing that Andy was feeling. Like we as customers deserve something better. Uh, and so off we went to try to, you know, think about how to build Harry's. Andy, will you describe that moment for us, what you were thinking at the time? The drugstore experience? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was wandering through a store. Uh, uh, I can tell you exactly where it was. It was a Rite Aid on 14th and Wilshire in Santa Monica, California. And uh, I had run out of razor blades and kind of wandering through the store, like looking for somebody to come unlock the case because they were locked away. Are locked away because they're so expensive and they get shoplifted all the time because they're so expensive. So it was just like this kind of absurd experience um, and, and frustrating experience. And I think moreover, um, you know, when I was just kind of looking at the shelf and the brands that were on the shelf, 
they didn't really speak to me as a consumer. There was like, I think a, a picture of like a razor blade flying over the moon on, on one of the packages. And, and obviously what the brand was trying to sort of communicate to me was like, oh, there's all this space age technology in this thing. And therefore you should pay, you know, $25 for a four pack of razor blades. But I was like, eh, I was like, should I really though? You know, like it, it felt a little bit disingenuous um, and, and didn't connect with me. So it was that like, I think amalgamation of, of, of emotions of like, you know, yeah, frustrated with overpaying, frustrated with a purchase experience that just wasn't great, um, lack of connection with brands that sort of led us to, to say, well, what if we did all those things differently? Like, what if we had a brand that actually felt, you know, sort of human and, and relevant and connected? What if we offered a high quality product at great value? What if we offered like just a much better overall, you know, sort of personalized experience, um, and so, yeah, that's, as Jeff said, I kind of G-chatted him the, the next day and batted around the idea and we were off to the races. So I would probably say that before you guys came along, razors were really thought of as a commodity. Um, nobody was really thinking about brand or digital or, or any of that, although there are many people thinking about that today. So did you really feel that digital was the on- unlock for that and digital was the way to connect with consumers and get branding and message and community across? Yeah, one of the things we really liked about sort of razors and blades, and um, I think this applies to lots of different kind of consumer and beauty products, is that you use them over and over again. And so I think the cool thing about um, kind of serving customers directly is you can really try to build a relationship with them. Like, you know, we used to say early on at Harry's that like, you know, when the someone buys like a razor for the first time, like that's just the beginning of our relationship. And like, we want to be your best friend or get married, you know, eventually. Like we want to continue to try to deliver you a great experience over time. And, you know, I think the great thing about our products is like people have to come back over and over and over again to buy our products. Like they, they, they run out. Um, and so that gave us such a cool opportunity to try to help figure out how to serve people over sort of like a, a much longer period of time. Um, and, and I think that dynamic, um, as much as anything, you know, enabled us to, or to sort of really then focus on how do we build like a really loyal following of customers by delivering them a unique and you know, sort of different digital experience. So it wasn't just could we resonate from a brand perspective to start? Could we, you know, design products that people loved? But, you know, could we stop becoming this big monolithic company to people and start becoming a group of humans that actually wanted to help them because, people from our CX team are reaching out as individuals saying, like, we're here for you. We love you. We want to give you a good experience. Or we can start to understand how often people would want to replace their products because, you know, if they bought eight razor blades and they're replacing them every two months, three or four times in a row, like, good chances were two months later they might need more. And so we can start to reach out to them at that moment and say, hey, you know, we think you might need some more blades. Is this the right, Is this a good time? And we'll make it super easy for you to buy these products. And I think those moments, um, I think, created real connection with customers. Um, at least that was our intention and still is um, to try to create real connection with customers. And and I think that the digital experience enabled to do that in, in a way that um, that I think was new and unique, at least in our category at the time. You know, you guys were fairly early to Omnichannel. Now that's something that everyone is talking about. Every digital brand that was a holdout is going into retail. What was your thinking back then, because now it's kind of like a last resort, I would say, for many digital-only retailers, or digital-only companies, rather, whereas you thought about that very early on. Yeah, I think there was like a, there was a narrative in the earlier days of direct-to-consumer that was probably like 
twofold. One was like, oh, you know, we're cutting out the middleman and like, you know, offering factory direct prices and all of that. I'm like, well, as it turns out, it's actually kind of expensive to like, you know, ship product and, and do all that fulfillment on your own. So I'm not sure that narrative was always like fully reflective of reality. Um, and then the other was, I think, this like concern that, hey, you know, you don't own the customer relationship, you don't own the data, there's all this beauty in the data, which is like true. I mean, obviously, I, th I think if you could own a customer relationship directly versus not all else being equal, you'd rather own the customer relationship. Um, but I think what we recognized reasonably early on was that if you're going to be like a consumer-centric brand, you have to show up like where and how consumers want to shop. And sometimes they're going to want to buy direct from you online, and sometimes they're going to want to buy you on their weekly shopping trip to Target or Walmart or whatever. Sometimes they're going to want to buy you on Amazon. And, and if you're going to be like a big brand that, that matters in the world, you have to figure out how to show up in, in all or at least most of those environments and, and be available. Um, I think the second thing that we probably recognized earlier than most was that there is like real power in an omni-channel marketing model. And if you think about, um, you know, direct-to-consumer advertising and spending, yes, you're trying to get people to convert on your website, but only a very small portion of people convert, like, you know, world-class conversion is like three, four or 5%, whatever. So you're building a bunch of awareness by putting, you know, performance marketing dollars into the world, but you're only leveraging it over literally like one point of distribution when you're direct to consumer online. And if you can leverage that over a much broader sort of distribution network, that's just like a, that's just a more powerful model. Um, and, and that's where I think by virtue of being a little bit early into a retail environment and recognizing that a little bit sooner than most, and now having like a ton of accumulated data around that, we've got this like marketing mix model that's actually quite sophisticated that knows exactly when we're spending on Facebook in like a given geography, like we know exactly how that's impacting conversion at Target or Walmart or Costco or Amazon. And, and, um, and as a result, we're able to like deploy marketing dollars a lot more efficiently, which I think ultimately leads to like, you know, a bigger, more profitable business than if we were just direct to consumer online. Yeah. I think the other thing I'd add is the other concern we, a lot of people had early on, and I think we did too, or was like, is this going to like hurt our brand? You know, like are people at these re big retailers going to treat our brand with respect and how do they think about brand? And I think what was reassuring and exciting for us is like they really do believe in the power of brands and brands coming to life in new and exciting ways for their customers. And, you know, we care so much about our customers and they care a lot about their customers too. You know, Target was the first retailer we launched at and they call their customers guests, which I always thought was great. It's like, and, you know, we had all these debates like, should we do this, should we do that? And like, well, it's just best for the guest. And, and I think like when you keep like the customer at the very center, that's where, and then, you know, like our, the second retailer we launched with was Walmart. They serve half the U.S. population every week. They care tremendously about every single person that walks in their door and ensuring that they're able to have amazing products at, at incredible value. And like, that's super highly tied to like, we, we, we subscribe to that. You should have awesome stuff and you know, you should get it at great value. And you should have the same value every day across the world, across the market. So it's super clear. And we were like, yeah, we're into that. Like, you know, we don't really promote. Like, we want to give people awesome, you know, quality products at great value and solve the pain point that Andy felt where he's feeling like he was being overcharged by, you know, the big brands. And so um, what was a cool through the experience for us was to get to know a bunch of people who actually, you know, have huge impact on customers um, and who care a lot about the customers as well. And I think that gave us 
a lot a feeling of sort of confidence that we could bring Harry's to life in those environments in a way that was unique and different um, and very much on brand for us. Um, and I think when we did that, um, yeah, one plus one became, you know, more than whatever. I don't know how to think. One plus one was three or something because um, I'm not great with math, but um, you get the, get the gist. <laughs> Tell me, I mean, I know today, obviously, Harry's Inc. has owned brands that you guys have incubated and also acquired. Do you think that life cycle is different today, the Omnichannel one? Because I would say digital brands don't even have a, a moment almost online before they're launching into a Sephora or an Ulta or a Target. It's like, three months and then they're in stores. Yeah, I think we still believe pretty deeply in the power of direct to consumer. Well, certainly throughout a brand's life state, you know, um, life cycle, but in particular in the early days. And, and I think there's like two things that are really important there. One is that when you're, when a brand is new and, and just launching or in its infancy, like Direct-to-consumer is an amazing environment to just, like, test, learn, iterate, you know, try new things, fail fast, et cetera, and, like, get to, you know, quote-unquote, like, product market fit. Um, it's very hard to do that in retail. Like, you launch a retail, it's like you can't just, like, swap, you know, things in and out. It's 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 a it's a much higher stakes, like, more static environment. You get, like, one time a year in which you're able to, like, refresh the assortment effectively. Direct-to-consumer, you can do that every single day. Test what works from a marketing standpoint, you know what types of consumers are buying. So I think that's really valuable. And I think brands that kind of rush into a retail environment too quickly, like there's real risk that you just haven't figured that out um, first. And I think the second is um, sort of what I alluded to earlier on, which is that as you are deploying like, you know, performance marketing dollars into the world, you're building awareness and, um, you're building a loyal customer base, but you're also building a bunch of awareness among people that maybe haven't converted, you know, on your website. But, you know, over time, that sort of pent up awareness, and we saw this with Harry's and we've seen this with other brands that we brought from direct to consumer into retail. There's just all this like pent up demand, you know, that you've created effectively that can then convert, you know, across 1800 stores at Target or 3,500 stores at Walmart and so the value of those two things, and it does take some time to like do both of those things to test, learn, and iterate, and to just kind of like build a business. Um, I, I think uh, lends us more to the belief of like, hey, we got to be patient, you know, and, and and build things a little bit more gradually, direct to consumer before we bring them into a retail environment because they're going to be that much more successful in a retail environment if we benefited from 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 the time to test, learn, and iterate, and to sort of build awareness. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to maybe, like, add, put, add an example to what Andy said, we started a brand called Cat Person. Um, and um, our biggest challenge in Cat Person is to figure out how to get cats to go from eating, like, less healthy food to the more healthy food that we offer. So I don't know what they're, like, the right analogy is. Get a cat to go from eating McDonald's to sweet green. And that's a complicated journey for a cat, you know? Like, cats really like McDonald's. And so how do you get them to, like, wreck it, you know, start to sort of say, hey, this is like pretty good food. Like, I like this. And so, you know, when we launched, we had a bunch of different types of food, flavors, chicken and fish and different formats. And then we started to figure out, okay, they're like certain cats who have been using, eating these foods like these other foods better. And so we can start to put those sort of forward and make suggestions to people about that. And then, hey, some cats who are trying to serve, you know, don't love this formula that we made. Like, let's we'll make a new formula that they will like more. And like, let's learn. And so, it's just a way to learn thoughtfully about how to do that and think about every step of that journey and experience. 
to try to make that, ultimately to make the customer happier at the end of the day. And there's so many opportunities we found to do that. You know, and if you if you think about our the current razor blades that we sell today in Harry's, I think we've changed every single component of our blades, or virtually every. We have um, reduced the cut force on our blades, which means you get a smoother shave. We've improved the coating, improved the lubricating strip. We've um, put a precision trimmer on the back. Our blades flex differently. Our handles are different. The, the, literally the connection mechanism, the click from the handle into the blade is different. Like We have made dramatic improvements. And like 90% of that is based on customer feedback. People saying, hey, like I, w- I would love to get to hard-to-reach places under my nose. Or I'd love to be able to square off my sideburns. Okay, well, let's put a blade on the on the back of you know our cartridge that enables you to do that, a precision trimmer. You know, I only shave in the shower. Like, you know, your handles are slipping a little bit for me. Okay, let's make sure that we have really great rubberized grips. I like to hear an audible click from the razor cartridge into the handle. Okay, cool. We can like actually we can do that. And so what's been cool is we, you know, through direct to consumer have been able to really listen to customers, get all the data, categorize it figure out here are the biggest issues that people are feeling, and then go to work on improving their experience. And I think that that's an amazing loop. And to Andy's point, if you launch at retail right after you launch at DTC, you're probably not going to have the time to really get that insight and feedback and then get it right for people. And you know, and so I think we've tried to be patient in, in most instances about around, okay, hey, like let's make sure that we have that right so that when we're ready to go, like we're able to go on, oh, it's been cool, with in the relationships with the retail partners that we have is like because we've had lots and lots of customers engage with on DTC and have all these learnings, we're able to share those learnings with retailers and then figure out okay how what can we do together to make your customer experience better in store and I think that's been valuable as we've as we've grown there too. You know, you guys were obviously one of the DTC breakouts amongst the many that were coming up around your time period around two thousand and nine two thousand and eight. Um, and within the shaving category and personal care category specifically, it was really just you guys and Dollar Shave. Dollar Shave went much earlier, and you were planning to be acquired by Edgewell for, I believe it was like about $1.4 billion. I have to say, you know, what happened with the FTC was pretty wild. W- looking back now, what was that like? Uh, it was pretty wild, Priya. Uh, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was uh, yeah, I mean, I think... For, for us, you alluded to this earlier, but, you know, about five years into the journey, we got really excited about building, like, a multi-brand, multi-category CPG company and kind of leveraging everything that we had learned within the Harry's brand and shaving um, and all of the infrastructure that we had built to support Harry's, like, both, like, actual, the, like, unsexy back-end stuff, you know, like, IT systems, but but also the capabilities around retail and omni-channel marketing and putting more brands on the platform through incubation and M&A. And we had sort of started down that journey. And then um, Edgewell came along and um, it was sort of a unique company because, you know, they had a shaving business and we thought that there was a lot of value in combining our shaving businesses. Um, And, um, you know, there was technology transfer, there was an opportunity to sort of position their brands and ours differently to sort of in the, in the grand battle against the, you know, the, the, the the evil empire, um, (laughs) who shall remain nameless. But, um, so we're like, great, this is going to be great for consumers. Like, awesome. Like, like, you know, this, this is the best thing that could happen in the category. And, you know, Edgewell had a portfolio of brands and sun care and a few other categories that we thought were interesting. They weren't, they weren't, um, 
they weren't sort of built for the modern era, but the idea of like, you know, sort of reimagining those brands, um, making an omni-channel sort of, you know, business out of them was an interesting and exciting proposition for us. I'll say it. It would have been fun for us to run Hawaiian Tropic. I think we would have had fun with that brand. Yeah. It's a fun um, brand. I mean, it needs revitalization, but it's a fun brand. But yeah. you'd imagine totally. there's a lot of like, totally. there's a lot of interesting things you could do with it. So, you know, and, and Jeff and I geek out on that kind of stuff. And um, so it was a little bit of a unique setup where, be- because the deal itself was like, we were, um, uh, you know, rolling a bunch of equity into it and um, basically being given responsibility for like running the entire North American business. So not just our business, but their whole portfolio of brands. Um, so it was like, you know, I, while it was an M&A transaction for sure, and there was some, you know, liquidity for us and our shareholders and all of that, um, it wasn't like a normal deal where it was like, all right, cool, we're going to like, you know, do this for a couple of years and then, and then peace out. It was like, you know, a different way to achieve our vision. And so when it didn't happen, which, you know, the process with the FTC and whatever, I won't get into all of that, but, um, you know, it was obviously disappointing because we had spent a lot of time and energy on it and felt like fundamentally it would be a good thing for consumers and, you know, they disagreed, but, um, our vision like wasn't that different at the end of the day. We're like, okay, well, you know, we, we need to just go back to sort of building this thing organically, um, both through, well, organically on our own, both through incubation and, and M&A. Um, and in some ways, you know, what I would say with the benefit of retrospect in hindsight is like, you know, we did get a look into truly like the belly of the beast when it comes to like big consumer products companies and how they operate and how they're sort of wired and, you know, retail led and we're like man like the, the the opportunity to disrupt across like multiple categories here and and the differentiation around our approach and using direct to consumer and it's like it's pretty different and so probably had that much more confidence and excitement around around doing it on our own so um but but if i actually looked like looked at the thread of the vision from like pre-Edgewell to during Edgewell to post-Edgewell it's like slightly different flavors and in ways to get to the same end state but the destination and, and this aspiration to like build this next generation CPG company was actually pretty consistent through through all those various iterations. And and it is today too. I think that's one of the things we remain really excited about. Was there ever a point, you know, after that happened and obviously this, you know, one would say pivot or further lean into incubation M&A that you thought about other acquirers or you thought about like, hey, we could go to somebody else or we might want to go to somebody else? You know, I think the Edgewell deal was pretty unique in the way that Andy described it, um, and that we would, you know, essentially take over the whole U.S. business and take on more responsibility. You know, and um, I think other people have reached out over time, and we're always open to conversations. I think we're pretty focused on figuring out always what's the right structure for Harry's. Is it best for us to be a standalone private company, a standalone public company? to be part of another company, to, you know, have partnerships with other companies. Like, I think all of those things have always been on the table for us. But I think with the true sort of manifestation that we're really excited about this vision for Harry's and and think that if not us, other people will come along and develop this in CPG. You know, next generation brands that uniquely appeal to customers that do so omni-channel um, with a real sort of like, mentality around just making people as happy as they possibly can um, and doing good for the community along the way, like giving back in meaningful ways. And so, I don't know, if that's exciting for us. And I think if there are other companies that could accelerate that vision, we'd be excited to chat about that. I think those are pretty unique and rare opportunities, though. And I think we're really happy and motivated to continue to be building 
the business independently. And you know, the the day before the Edgewell the deal, you know, we signed the deal. Um, I was talking to my wife, and she's like, "You're just so calm. Like, I'm surprised you're not more. This is crazy. This is like a big deal." And I was like, "Yeah, you know, like it's going to be an exciting opportunity to go do this with an Edgewell. We also have a pretty great thing that's our own business today, though. And if it doesn't happen, like we'll be great. You know, it's like." I, we had we were sort of choosing between good alternatives and and so I think when it didn't happen like we still have a really exciting vision and I think one that we're Tandy's point is we were even more emboldened to go execute after having seen how some other you know companies execute, uh, operate so that's that um, and I, you know I think practically like we've just come out of a pretty complex time you know and I think have been able to um, continue to grow the business in an exciting way there and and I think that probably has given us even more confidence. And our ability to to do this as an independent company over the long term. Now you incubated Flamingo before any of the Edgewell FTC, yep. you know, nonsense. Yep. But you were obviously very focused on shaving personal care there, and yet the next brand that you incubated was a cat brand. Tell me a little bit about that. Why the pivot? Because some people would say CPG is really just like, you know, food and beverage or totally. baby food or beauty. Like, it seemed to be like a really different approach. And I can jump in and then maybe I'd love you, you definitely feel free to add thoughts. I think, um, like, I, I think if you think about what Harry's and Flamingo both did is they found an unmet consumer need, you know, an opportunity to do something that was actually better for somebody. And then we're able to build products that did that, that solved that need. You know, I think InShave had started with delivering really high quality products at great value. And then also speaking to people, I think how they wanted to be spoken to in these categories, like, you know, in Harry's, it was, you don't have to be the best, like some perfect, you know, sort of guy with a six pack, you know, shaving, looking off into the distance with a perfect jawline, like you can just be normal. Um, And we want to be a brand that's warm and approachable and kind of on the journey with you. And on Flamingo, I think it was, you know, you don't have to be like a goddess, like, you can, you know, be. Um, we like recognize your reality as a woman in shaving, and we called it the brand flamingo because of like the pose that women make when they're shaving. You know, which is kind of on one leg, like an awkward pose to like flamingo. And so we felt like um, the whole brand is around recognize reality, and then giving you control around sort of, you know, removing hair how and when and where you want, um, and giving you choice and control over you know sort of what you want to do with your body, which we think is great. Um, and so. Um, we felt like we had the opportunity to build brands and unique products that differentially met consumers' needs and do it on DTC. And that that could actually be applied anywhere in CPG. Like, if you think about where other CPG companies have focused, they've said, we're going to win in deodorant. And we're going to win there because we can make deodorant more cheaply than everybody else and we can dominate the shelf at retail. Like, that's not how and why Harry's or Flingo were successful. We weren't making products more cheaply and, you know, we had presence at retail, but it's because customers wanted us there. We weren't, like, trying to dominate a retail shelf. And so when we looked at our approach, we said, that's actually freeing for us. We can take these capabilities, building unique brands, trying to really solve consumer problems, having the brands have a purpose and mission and starting DTC, and we can apply them to any category. We just need to find opportunities where there are those things. And then someone on our team who loves cats came to us and said, it's really messed up to be a cat owner today. Like, <laughs> there's all this stigma around being a cat person in society, which stinks. And I think that's changing, but that still that exists. Cats themselves are treated like second-class citizens in the pet industry relative to dogs. Humans and dogs are omnivores. They need, you know, meat and grain and vegetables in their diets. Cats are carnivores. Like, they need meat. And I'm looking at all this cat food. I don't understand, like, why there's grain and peas and stuff in my cat food. Like, I just want to give my cats chicken. 
or or fish. And so I'm going to the store and buying it for them and making it myself. And like that feels backwards. There's not a brand out there that I can tell that's truly like sort of cat nutrition first that speaks to sort of the fact that it's awesome to be a cat person and that really celebrates cats in a way that they, that there could. And there's definitely not one that's doing it online in a way that I'm excited about. And so we took a step back and we're like, you're right. And then we thought, okay, so like where where do we think we know how to do? Like we think we can build brands that speak to consumers in, in unique ways. We think that we can solve their problems. And for us, in some ways, it's like the exception that proves the rule. If we can be successful here, we can do this anywhere. And what's exciting to see is that Cat Person is growing successfully. And a lot of what we did to build Harry's and Flamingo has been directly applicable. Now, the difference, as I mentioned, is we have to learn a lot about cats. And so the way we set the company up and the, is that we have a whole team that's just focused on Cat Person so they can be fully dedicated to that mission. And so I think where we might look different from other CPG companies over time is, as opposed to having kind of one giant business that's focused on all these brands, we have teams that are pretty highly dedicated to each of the brands. And that's how we enable that focus to make sure that we're really solving customer problems in that way. Because you're still learning so much about cats, is that one of the reasons why you guys haven't gone into store with Cat Person? Like you're still totally. looking for the data, the community? Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's growing like like normally. But I think that if it wasn't cats, we'd probably still not be going to stores with brands. Like I think that's kind of our perspective. It's like if we went into the next category in personal care, I think it would still take time. If the brand's going to be really different and the proposition for customers, it still take time to learn. So, sorry, Andy, go ahead. No, I was going to say that, yeah, it's a, it's a perfect example of exactly what we were talking about earlier, which is that, you know, that brand launched in, um, like, early 2020. And we've taken a couple of years to, like, really understand, like, make sure the product proposition is right, first of all. Like, the cat's got to love the food. That's important. Like, and as we're building capability around that, that we have, like, the sort of really understanding of the consumer and the consumer pain point and marketing that sort of, you know, fits that. And all the while, like, you know, we're building awareness and we're, we're building a loyal customer base. And so when we ultimately do bring that brand to retail at some point in the future, like it's going to be, you know, set up to, to be successful. Um, and I just want to reiterate one point that Jeff made, because I think it's important just like how we're set up philosophically and, and why it sort of enables us to potentially be a little bit more category agnostic is like, if you think on the, on the spectrum from like fully integrated, like central command CPG company to like holding company, like we are certainly closer to like the holding company end of the spectrum where, you know, we, we really do treat these brands and businesses as like independent operating units with their own teams. Um, and, you know, there is some dissynergy from that, obviously, like, you know, there's, there, there's some value to like sharing a supply chain or, or, you know, sharing, you know, resources in certain areas. But, you know, our belief is that giving a team like independence, driving decision-making as close to the consumer as possible, like letting them move quickly and not get bogged down in like corporate process. Like that's really important for, for our model and our approach. And I think it does allow us to, to potentially be, you know, a little bit more agnostic to category, uh, you know, and, and a little bit more flexible in the way we just kind of think about, Hey, okay, is there fundamentally, is there an unmet consumer need? And is this brand like better addressing, you know, this need than, than alternatives, whether it's a brand we incubate or buy, and, you know, is it a good D2C business, um, which again, like D2C businesses can like operate pretty independently. Um, and if so, like, right, maybe that's something we, we should, you know, we should be in rather than to Raider's point, like, do we need to dominate a retail shelf? So within the incubation strategy, I mean, that's really been the bulk of the brands that 
you know, you guys have under your larger portfolio company. But what are you thinking about with M&A? And tell me about the first case study of that. Yeah, so we, um, on M&A, the first thing we actually did um, was um, back in, I guess it was probably 2017 or 2018, we we co-led the seed round in HIMSS. um, And uh, at the time, we weren't totally sure what like our inorganic approach would be minority investments, majority investment. In that case, it was a minority investment. Um, and that's obviously been a really successful business and was a great financial outcome for us. And and we sort of opened up our network and, and helped in the early days. Um, but I think recognized through that, that um, in order to sort of get the full benefits of our platform um, and yield the full sort of benefits of, of the outcome that that having sort of control positions in, in companies was going to be um, probably a, a better approach for us. And so more recently, we bought um, a business called Lumi, um, which is a brand um, that's founder-led, um, an OBGYN um, started it. And um, it's a uh, all-over sort of woman's body odor um, brand, uh, natural deodorant. And um, it's a business that... Um, it's sort of like a perfect case study for where we think that we can sort of help and and partner with founders or other entrepreneurs to to help grow their business. And um, this woman, Shannon, uh, as an OBGYN, a woman were coming in complaining of vaginal odor and they just get this default diagnosis of of, uh, a bacterial infection. And she's like, there's no way that all these women have bacterial infections. Like this isn't like a real diagnosis. In some cases they might, but like this is just, there's not like a scientific diagnosis here. It's just like a default thing. Take some antibiotics and go on your way. And so what she recognized and realized is that what was going on was actually just a sweat reaction, um, similar to the reaction that happens like under your arms or other parts of your body. And she developed like literally in her kitchen, a product um, that's uh, based on mandelic acid effectively to neutralize the pH of um, sort of the fluids when they hit your skin and, and neutralize the odor reaction. Um, and then um, while it was initially created to sort of uh, treat vaginal odor, she was, you know, has developed a product that now like works all over your body in different formats and built the business direct to consumer online um, and was looking for like a partner to figure out like, well, how do I take this to the next stage? How do I create, you know, a more data-driven direct to consumer business? How do I bring it into a retail environment? Um, but probably as importantly for her, she's like, how do I keep doing this? Like, I love this. I love this product. I love this brand. This is my life's work, my wife's, my life's passion. And we're like, awesome, Shannon. Like, we want to partner with you to do this. Like, we don't want to get in your way. Like, what we want to do is help enable you by like leveraging, you know, our experience at retail, leveraging this multi-channel marketing model that we have and the data and analytics capabilities. So you can like opt into those things and, and we're happy to support but like, you know, we want you to run this business. You know, we want you to own and drive all the decision-making, continue to build your team and your business. Um, and we're happy to sort of support you along the way. Um, and so that has gone really well for us. I think a lot of this thesis is like playing out. The business is doing great. Um, and I think it's like a good um, sort of example of, of how we would do M&A potentially differently from like a traditional CPG company and why we see a lot of opportunity there. Speaking of Shannon, you know, when you were talking about your journey, obviously, with, you know, potentially selling to another kind of uh, conglomerate versus Edgewell, you know, most founders stay at a a big company for two or three years and then they're gone. You know, they cash out and they leave. With Shannon and when you think about future M&A deals, like, is the idea that you want the founder to stay on as long as possible? 
Yeah. yeah. I think there's magic with founders. Um, and um, I think hopefully the difference between us and other big CPG companies is that we're founders too. Like, we get it. Um, and I think we understand ourselves, like what we would want in a situation where we were going to, you know, sort of be part of a bigger thing. And um, we feel like there are a bunch of amazing founders out there. And how cool would it be if we could bring together like an incredible collection of amazing founders to build a business and share resources under one platform? Like, and still do that autonomously and independently and learn from each other, share talent, and share some sort of capabilities that that we have across the business. Like, that we think would be a pretty cool company. Um, and, you know, what's been exciting is just to get to spend time with Shannon. Andy and I are going to spend time with her, both both of us get to spend time with her tomorrow. Like, it's so fun. Like, learn from her ideas and perspectives and thinking. And she pushes us on our business and we have thoughts for her. On hers, it's it's really, really, really wonderful. Um, and I like really enjoy those those kind of conversations. And so, um, I, I would hope over time that there might be other founders that would find that interesting. And I think it is different. It's not like you're selling to a big CPG company or a private equity firm, and you're going to kind of cash out. Like, of course, we want everyone to do super well financially, but you know, I think there's also the way we think about it is like we could build pretty incredible value over the long term together um, by sort of approaching having a shared perspective of how we want to approach brands and sort of this industry differently than anyone else has in the past. I was just going to say, as Jeff, as Jeff mentioned too, I think what's, what's played out in practice there too is like the knowledge transfer really does go both ways. And like you might hear like a big CPG company and be like, oh, we're going to learn from these guys. But it's like, I don't know, they're dropping the, you know, in the, in the pool effectively. And like they get one meeting a year with the CEO for 15 minutes. Like, you know, for us, like we now have this ecosystem between Catperson and Harry's and Flamingo and, and Lumi, and like literally the, the people who run those direct-to-consumer businesses like get together like every couple of weeks, they compare notes to like, hey, here's the creative that's working. Here's the channels that are like performing well, not, oh, did you try this? Like, and, and we're, what we're seeing is like real power to like creating that that almost collective in that ecosystem. And so, um, and I think that's energizing for folks too, where they like, yes, of course they want to benefit from us too, but they also like want to share, you know, their knowledge and perspective and have impact across the broader business. Now, I know you said you're category agnostic, and Andy, you and I talked previously about maybe ideas that you might be interested in, but are there areas that you are looking at more aggressively than, say, other categories? Uh, yeah, there's definitely, when I say we're category agnostic, it's not that we don't think they're, like some categories are better than others. It's just that we feel like there's probably could be good opportunities anywhere, and we try not that to be like a limiting factor. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we, we love pet uh, and it's obviously an area where we've got a foothold today in cat person, but I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities there um, that we've looked at um, uh, on the M&A front in particular. Um, we're pretty excited about health and wellness and and I know that's like sort of a broad category, but, um, you know, uh, products that are, and, and, and brands that are sort of, you know, um, truly offering like a differentiated solution to, to consumers that are, that are, that are looking for, you know, um, wellness, whether it's like vitamins, minerals, and supplements or, or other sub subcategories there. And there's obviously a lot of sort of growth and momentum, um, behind a bunch of those categories. So those are a couple of examples of areas where we're probably like, you know, more excited. Um, but, um, but we're open-minded. The M&A market seems to have slowed a little bit from like the traditional buyers in the space. Are you guys thinking, you know, that's going to impact you given inflation, all the economic pressures that we're all seeing across the board? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that what we've seen is there's a little bit of paralysis right now because, you know, people are, there's so much uncertainty and and probably a disconnect between buyers and sellers, valuation expectations, and yeah, just uncertainty like freezes people up. Um, I think as we look forward though, like there, there's, for us, I think there are a lot of really interesting, compelling, you know, direct-to-consumer-led, you know, businesses and brands and CPG um, that have like, you know, product market fit, that have a brand that resonates and where they really kind of probably need a platform, so to speak, is like, how do I, how do I really scale this thing? How do I bring it into an omni-channel environment? How do I, you know, deploy marketing dollars more efficiently? And that's where I think we can add, you know, disproportionate value. Um, And um, I think in some ways, like, it's almost like a contrarian point of view right now, because obviously direct to consumer is like out of, you know, the, 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 uh, like consensus, like generic wall street wisdom on direct to consumer is like, that doesn't work. Like, you know, the economic model is broken or like, no, like that's not right. Actually. It's like, yes, you need an omni-channel business and you need to approach it differently. And so like, in some ways, I think that's going to create opportunity for us though, too. Cause like we understand direct to consumer, like we, we know exactly how it works. We understand the power of it. We know how to underwrite it like in volatile times because we, We've seen the movie, we, you know, we know there's ups and downs. And, and I think that gives us a lot of comfort as a buyer where a lot of other buyers like are going to get scared off by that kind of stuff. Um, so we're probably, yes, there's some, you know, macro uncertainty and, and whatever that, that creates, you know, some practical challenges in the immediate term. But I think we're more like bullish than we've ever been um, if we look forward 12 months. And I think the success we're seeing with Lumi is giving us like that much more excitement around, you know, doing more, more M&A like that. And you're really thinking about one to two deals a year, right? Not yeah. more? Yeah. It's not a roll-up strategy. I think that's probably important um, to know. Like, we still believe in the power of, like, big brands, um, things that can be, you know, cross-channel, cross-category, cross-geography over time. There's just a lot of leverage in, in that model. And so, yeah, for us you know, it's, it's one or two deals a year. It's, you know, if you, if you fast forwarded, you know, three years from now today, we've got sort of like four brands in the portfolio, like maybe we would have seven and maybe we'd be in three categories as opposed to two. Um, but you know, I, I, um, uh, we're definitely more excited about like sort of, you know, things that we think can be pretty big and, you know, we're, we, we, we can only take on so much at any given point in time too. So how are you feeling about the economic pressures? Are you, I mean, are you worried about consumer spending being lowered and inflation? Like, do you feel that impact from within your own organization and then obviously from customers? I think I think that we've been in a pretty tumultuous economic time for a long time. And Fair. I think this is just a continuation in some ways for us. Um, I, I guess a couple things. One, like, I think that this uh, disruption that happened to global supply chain, while talked about a lot, it had just like such massive impact on not just us, but our industry. And that actually feels like it's getting a little better, which is amazing. Um, and so I, I don't know, knock on wood, but like it, it was really, really challenging. I think for a couple of years, just to literally be able to get product like um, to people. Um, and so that took so much of our time and energy and focus, uh, not just us, but our organizations. Um, I think, as we move forward, you know, I, we definitely believe that there will be kind of continued economic disruption. Um, and, you know, the categories that we play in are categories that where people like need products every day. Um, 
And I think what we're focused on is not that different when we've always been focused on brand, but I think this has just sharpened our perspective, which is we need to be able to deliver people exceptional quality product at amazing value. Like, and I think, you know, as we look at where we sit today, like, we really do think that our products, for what our products deliver, are, are, are priced in, a, in an amazing way for customers. And what we're starting to see in a bunch of places, um, our customers kind of voting for products like that with their feet. Like, we're, we're starting to grow our businesses in categories that might be declining um, because I think customers are really looking for, like, just really good products at really great value. Um, and, and we've always stood for that, you know, in Harry's with razor blades from the start because we felt like those products were just overpriced. Um, like, there's no reasons that, you know, a few pieces of metal and plastic should be costing $5 for each of those individual things. And we could deliver people awesome products at, at much better value. And so um, I think that that hopefully will, will benefit us. And, you know, I think as challenging as these times might be, I think we're also focused on, okay, how do we, like, there will be better times in the future at some point, And how can we emerge from these even stronger? And how can we take this as an opportunity to continue to like build strength in our business, you know, through these challenging times? And and so that's the thing that we're spending a lot of time with our team on right now. Um, Last question for you guys. Speaking of good times, is the goal ultimately to IPO? Do you think you guys want that? I but I like so Warby Parker is not a public company, and I think like the one thing that I'd say there is like um, the work doesn't start or finish when you go public. It's just a a milestone along the journey. And I think, as I mentioned before, we're kind of open to whatever structure will be best for um, for um, for the business. Right now, we think being a standalone private company is actually a pretty great thing to do. Um, we have a long-term vision. We want to execute it over the long term. We have amazing investors. We're well-capitalized. And so we don't feel a lot of pressure to, to be public. I think at some point, um, being a public company has really significant benefits. Like, you know, employee and investor liquidity is one, a wonderful thing. Um, having access to capital to go do more M&A deals is valuable. And I think the public markets and in public market investors, like, make companies sharper in some ways. Like, I think the, the fact that you've got to perform, you know, on an ongoing basis every quarter, you know, does bring discipline to businesses. That is good. So I think that I could certainly see us being a public company someday, but I don't think we're in any huge rush, and I'm not sure that it's like the ultimate goal. It's like just another step along the journey. Andy, do you have a take? I agree with with all of that, and I think, um, yeah, as Jeff said, there's like a you know a, a, a pragmatic need for for liquidity at some point, but it's like what what platform gives us the best ability to just like keep. You know, if we want to create like the next generation Procter and Gamble, that's going to take fifty years. Probably somebody's going to be doing it long after you know Jeff and I are right off into the sunset. And so, like, what structure enables that the best? Could be public. You know, you 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 could do that privately with the right type of backing, and you know, even maybe there is some situation in which you can do that as as part of another organization. But um, yeah, we've tried to you know, um, having seen lots of twists and turns and ups and downs, like over, over 10 years on that dimension, I, th- I think we tried to like, let that be more just like, you know, output than input, so to speak. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully, um, find the right structure to, to keep, you know, building the business. Thank you guys so much for being here. It was so wonderful talking. Thanks a lot for having us, Priya. Happy to do it. Thank you, Priya. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. 
Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.